You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is time for Searching the Scriptures in the Lutheran Witness December issue. We'll do that in just a moment. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting the Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. It is time to take a look at the December issue of the Lutheran Witness, particularly Searching the Scriptures, which I believe is on page 26. Joining us today, the Reverend Roy Askins, Managing Editor for the Lutheran Witness. Pastor Askins, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back. It is good to study God's Word with you. Looking forward to digging in. And we've been working through the Creed. So what does this bring us to this month? The end. The oh, end. boy. <laughs> But it's the beginning because we're in Advent now. But it's also the end. It's also the end. <laughs> it's also the end. <laughs> All right. So, I, so, so, like, I'm a historic lectionary guy. So, we're like in times readings right now, right? Yeah. It's all the end. So, we're coming up on the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. Period. The end. So, this is the conclusion of the Bible study uh, on the Apostles' Creed, the series we've been doing over the last year, and it ends with a dramatic conclusion about the end of the world. There are lots of crazy ideas that people have about uh, the end times, (laughs) as well as our eternal life with God, and we're going to try and correct some of those interesting ideas that people have and uh, return our focus, as always, on what God has said in His Word and uh, on Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's kind of going to be the theme here is as we look at the end times and as we look at Jesus, our our eternal life in particular, we are going to do so with a focus on Jesus Christ and our life with him because that ultimately is the real reason for this. Shall we dig into the questions? Let's do it. All right. Question number one. Read Matthew 22, verses 23 through 33. How does Jesus prove from the Old Testament that there is a resurrection from the dead? So the emphasis here is uh, on Jesus demonstrating the resurrection of the dead. Uh, Even in the Old Testament, there was some discussion. Today, there's lots of, of course, lots of scholarly people who claim to study the Bible who say there's no uh, resurrection in the Old Testament. The Sadducees themselves were arguing about this during the time of Christ. So we're going to look at this and see what does Jesus, how does Jesus demonstrate, even from the Old Testament, that there is, in fact, Uh, resurrection from the dead. So uh, the reading from Matthew chapter 22. The same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection and they asked him a question saying, teacher Moses said if a man dies having no children his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third down to the seventh. After them all the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered, You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching." Okay, so the what the, these Sadducees are coming with to Jesus is an attempt to try and trap him in teaching. And what they're referring to is this 
Old Testament law that required a younger brother to marry his older brother, the oldest brother's wife, and provide offspring for the oldest brother if the oldest brother died before he had offspring. And this was to continue the the lineage of handing down the inheritance from the firstborn child to the next firstborn child. And since the, fir- the firstborn the first son was not able to provide offspring, the second son has then uh, steps into that role and provides offspring there. And, uh, and so then in this parable, of course, or this, this story, all of these brothers marry this woman, and she doesn't provide any offspring for him. They die. So who's is she? Well, Jesus first corrects teaching about marriage, which we're going to get to a little bit later. But then he says this, and this is what he uses to demonstrate the resurrection of the dead. God says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead but of the living. Now note he does not say God does not say I was the God of Abraham, I was the God of Isaac. He says I am. He is and continues to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. And if he's the God of the living, then they must therefore still be alive because he continues to be and remain their God. Right? Even concurrently, right? Abraham was not alive at the time of Jacob, right? And yet even as he says this to the those hearing well after the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he remains their God even though they are dead physically, which means that the these patriarchs must be alive with God somewhere if he is still the God of the living. I, I noticed in that text, and this is total side note, and yes, sorry to go for derail it. us. D- derail away. Verse 30, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given, given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. I wonder if that's where we got this crazy idea, like the whole it's a wonderful life thing, that, that people become angels when they're in heaven. Do you think that's where that idea came from? Like people took that verse out of context and just ran with it. Okay, sorry for this, the sidetrack. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's certainly possible. No, that's really possible. And I think that's actually important to bring up here that people don't become angels in heaven. Yeah. I don't actually refer, I reference this in the Bible study later on, but people don't become angels, right? It says they are like the angels in reference to the fact that the angels are not married. Right. It mm-hmm. does not say that they, oh, they become angels, they get wings, they yeah, flutter right. around, right? Every time you hear a bell ring, all that kind of silliness. <laughs> yeah, you're exactly right. I wonder if that is where that came from. I don't know. Okay, question. I'll have to dig into that more. Next question. Sure. Now that I derailed us. <laughs> um, read First Corinthians 15. What event is the foundation for our belief that we will also one day be raised from the dead? And what other language does St. Paul use to describe death? And resurrection in First Corinthians 15. So we're, once again, continuing to work to this phrase, the resurrection of the body. And we're going to look at what is the foundation of this resurrection. Now, we don't have time here to read as much as we would love to do so. The entire uh, chapter of First Corinthians 15, I, of course, encourage all of you at home to do this. But let's look at a few verses here that provide the foundation, help us understand why we ourselves also hope for a resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Now, once again, getting back to this idea of the Old Testament, when St. Paul here says, in accordance with the Scriptures, he's not talking about the New Testament, right? <laughs> he is, in fact, very much referring to the Old Testament, right? So he even sees uh, this foreshadowing, this prophecy that there will be that there is resurrection even in the Old Testament, uh, and that Christ died and was raised according to this. Okay, now let's jump down a few more verses to uh, verse twelve, uh, and this gets to the importance of the resurrection for us. 
Now, if Christ, St. Paul writes, is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Okay, so here's the foundational part of Christ's resurrection from the dead. If he has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is in vain and my faith is in vain. And I've, as St. Paul says, we've even been found to be misrepresenting God because we testify that God raised him from the dead. Okay, so if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is, is in vain. We have no, no hope for living. He continues in verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Okay. Point being, if the focus is only on this life and no looking toward what is to come in the resurrection, we have no hope. Right. We are most to be pitied. Right. I mean, just think about this. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then why go live a Christian life? Why live according to God's law? Why desire to do these good and godly things? If there is no hope for what is to come, go live a wild hedonistic life. Why not, right? The fact of the matter is, we are who we are because Christ has been raised from the dead and has given us the promise that we also will participate with him in this eternal life. Okay, so he also uses a couple of other metaphors to talk about Christ uh, in his ra- being raised from the dead. In verse 20, he talks about Christ as the first fruits. So in the Old Testament, they would bring the first fruits of their crops to the Lord, and it would, they'd be sacrificed to the Lord, and the Lord would use them to provide for his priests and his people. And so Jesus is the first fruits, is an, another way of the way St. Paul talks. He's the first fruits. We are the fruits that follow afterwards, right? He offered himself up, up for us and was raised from the dead. We will likewise follow with him. And then kind of following along with this uh, metaphor of fruit, he also also talks about the resurrection in the sense of sowing the seed. So if you go down to verse 35, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, he says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come from? And he says, uh, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life until it dies, unless it dies. All right. And then he talks, so he talks about the, the body being laid in the grave as and dying. And as the, the body will be transformed in the way that the seed is transformed from a seed into a plant. Totally different, right? You start the seed becomes a plant. So also will our bodies be. We can't even really begin to grasp really the full change and what this will mean for us as the people of God. So those are some of the other metaphors that he uses. Sure. Question three. Let's do it. All right. Getting into some of the misconceptions that some people have. Read mm-hmm. First Corinthians, or sorry, First Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. How does St. Paul describe those who have died in the faith? Some, religi- some religious sects like the Seventh-day Adventists use this passage to teach soul sleep, the idea that the soul sleeps after death until the resurrection of the dead. And then also read Luke 23, 39 through 43, and Matthew 17, 1 through 13. How do these passages illustrate that the souls of the faithful departed are with the Lord while they await the resurrection of all flesh? That was a long question. That is a lot packed in there. Who wrote that question? Yeah, really. Uh, We'll have to go talk to him. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's just begin with the the passage from 1 Thessalonians. But we do not want you to be uninformed, St. Paul writes, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And so the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So he uh, speaks about the faithful departed as those who are asleep. They are sleeping. And this is actually a common language and metaphor used by the early church to describe those who have died in the faith and, and who are awaiting this resurrection of the Lord. They are sleeping as they await. Now, as I mentioned in the question, this long question, and we have another one of those in five too. <laughs> as I mentioned this long question, this is taught by some to mean to to or the teaching some people derive from this is that is referred to as soul sleep that the soul sleeps in the body so the soul is there with the body but kind of sleep unaware unconscious as it were maybe perhaps like in a dream but still there in the body not with the lord but just kind of sleeping and awaiting for the day of the resurrection of the lord right hmm. are have you heard this before is this a, a common teaching that you're I think I've heard the the concept, not specifically that it's with the body, but that it's not necessarily right with the Lord either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's actually the emphasis. Regardless yeah. of where the soul is, it's that it's sleeping and that it's not with the Lord. It's just kind of hanging out, waiting for the resurrection. Hmm. Okay. And and as Lutherans, we reject this teaching. This is not faithful to what the scriptures, how the scriptures speak about our eternal existence with God. And so for that, we have. Um, a, a couple of, of Bible passages here. So Luke 23, verse 39 to 43 is a common one often used uh, to talk about this. Uh, one of the criminals, this is uh, the crucifixion, the criminals hanging on the cross. One of the criminals who was hanged, who are hanged, railed at Jesus saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence? And we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, obviously that man's corpse was still hanging on the cross, right? And yet Jesus' promise is that despite the fact that his body is here, he is going to be with Jesus. And so he is there uh, in soul, if not in body awaiting for this final and full resurrection. The other passage often used to talk about the why we don't believe in soul sleep is the transfiguration. And we don't have to read this whole passage. It's Matthew 17, 1 through 13. But uh, there are two folks that appear with him, first Moses and Elijah. Now, for I'm sure you guys are aware, how did Moses die? Do you remember? Oh, I stumped you. I was so focused on Elijah because. Okay, so how did Elijah die? So this is obviously the fly in the ointment, right? right? How did Elijah die? Chariots and yeah, exactly. Fire. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the chariots of fire come down, and Elijah hops in and uh, goes up. So he doesn't actually die. His body is still with him, right? He's not Mm -hmm. actually separated soul and body. So the fly in the ointment is, of course, Moses. Or I mean, not Moses. Elijah's the fly in the ointment. Uh, Moses is the one who actually dies. The Lord takes him, and the Lord actually buries his body. Nobody knows where he was. He was buried. Um, He was 120 years old, and I'll never forget that passage. His eye was not dimmed. His strength was not weakened at all. And the, the, he dies at 120 and the Lord buries him. But so he was dead. And yet he appears here at the transfiguration with Jesus, right? We haven't had the full resurrection yet. We're still waiting for the end of days to come. And yet you have Moses and Elijah standing there with the Lord. So obviously there is some sort of existence that they live in with Jesus, despite the fact that their bodies are, are no longer living and breathing. This is 
starting to make my brain hurt. <laughs> but it's good in a good way. Good. It's healthy. A you know. Brain hurt is a good thing sometimes. Right, right. And we have more <laughs> we have more to study. We'll come back to uh, th- this text and continue our study in searching the scriptures in the December issue of the Lutheran Witness with the Reverend Roy Askins. More on the way. You're listening to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golset. <laughs> You're a miracle. You know that, right? A living, breathing, one-of-a-kind miracle. You were created to stand apart, to share your gifts in the service of others, to make an uncommon impact in a common world. And at Concordia University, it's our mission to help you do that, to live uncommon. To learn more about Concordia, go to cuw.edu. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We are searching the scriptures with Pastor Roy Askins, managing editor for the Lutheran Witness. We're taking a look at the December issue and moving on to question four. This is on page 26. Is that right, Sarah? Yes. Okay, page 26. And uh, we're on question number four, Pastor. Some religions, such as Buddhism, teach the immortality of creation, that it will endure forever. Read Psalm 102 verses 25 and 26, Matthew 5:18 and Romans 8:21 to or 20 to 21. What does scripture teach about the ultimate end of the world? Also read 2 Peter 3:5 through 7, who will effect this destruction and how will it be done? All right, so we got some text to read. I um, think I gave away the answer. I think yeah, you, you kind of did, yeah. but that's okay. Um, <laughs> I think it's how it's supposed to work. Okay. Let's read Psalm 102:25 to 26. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Now, of course, the emphasis of this psalm is on the fact that God endures forever and remains the same. He doesn't change even as everything else around us change, changes. The very foundations of the earth will in fact change and be destroyed. And that's kind of the point here. They will wear out. They will perish. They will wear out like a garment. Of course, you've had those, I mean, wearing a pair of these uh, pants here I've worn way too many times and, you know, they're getting thin in various places and they're about ready to start coming apart, right? So also creation itself will perish. It's wearing out. It will uh, perish and, and fall apart and be destroyed. It wasn't made to last forever. There is no such thing as this immortality of creation going on and on. There is a, a beginning and an end. And this is, it's a, actually a fundamental worldview shift that we have to kind of keep in mind when we uh, read some of the things we're reading or watch, especially watch some of the movies. You get these ideas that, that and some of these um, movies that creation is just kind of ongoing, right? It's just different cycles of the same thing. It's just circles and circles. But that's not actually how our Lord created the world. He creates it with a beginning and an end with a specific uh, purpose in mind and intention. As they used to say in the old philosophical terms, it has a telos, a purpose, a goal for which it it lives and exists. And so that's what we see there in this Psalm 102, right? Uh, It will wear out. It will be destroyed. Now, moving on to Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, this is Jesus speaking during the um, Sermon on the Mount, talking about the law and how he came to fulfill the law. And he says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Once again, his creation has a purpose and an intention, right? He creates the world for a reason. 
and and not one single bit of this law will pass away until or, or the earth, heaven and earth pass away until all of this law is accomplished. So all of this comes together. It will pass away eventually, but when the law is accomplished. And then moving on to Romans uh, chapter eight, verses twenty and following, Saint Paul writes. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So creation itself, God also subjected all of creation to the consequences of sin, right? The reason why our bodies die is a consequence of sin. We die because we are sinful people. We bear the fruit of Adam's sin. It is our sin also. As a consequence of this, we will die. All creation itself is also bound to the same futility, right? God himself subjected it and made it so. And so he will also then, ultimately, as we see in the second Peter passage, be the one that destroys this creation and 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 brings it at the, on the last day, destroys it and brings forth a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. Let's actually read that second passage, or that last passage, second Peter chapter three. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, St. Peter writes, that the heavens existed long ago, and that the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Okay, so the earth, he's talking here about the the creation. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, there was water and the spirit hovering over the water. It was made formed through water by the word of God, right? But then it was deluged, that is the flood, destroyed with water. But now it's going to be destroyed eventually on the last day, not with water, but with fire, right? And that will happen on the day of judgment by God himself. He is the one who both creates, uh, deluge this creation, and then will also eventually one day destroy this creation on the day of on the day of judgment, and then we'll cre- create a new heavens and a new earth for his children. All right, question five. Yeah, how are All we doing on we're, time? We're getting a, a little short on time. Okay, sounds good. We only have two questions left, though. <laughs> Read John 3.16 and Matthew 25, verses 34 and 46. What do these tell us about the term or length of our life in heaven? People have some curious no- notions about eternal life. We should learn to limit ourselves to the scriptures. And then also read Matthew 22, verses 29 through 30, Revelation 7, 14 through 17, 1 Corinthians 15, 52, and 1 John 3, verse 2. What aspect of eternal life do each of these passages highlight? Okay, so we're going to hit the first one real quick. John three sixteen. you guys can go read Matthew 25 on your own. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life, right? So our existence with God will be an eternal existence, one that does not end. Now, I think this is actually something that gives, that creates in us this desire. I, I, here's the thing. I think a lot of people see this and they think, oh my goodness, this is going to be so boring. Eternal life, like singing around the throne, like, do I not get to do something else? And I think this is our sinful flesh speaking, right? Because th- this just doesn't seem all that exciting just to be standing around the throne of the Lamb and just singing again and again forever. And so we end up coming up with all these crazy ideas about what we're going to do in heaven. Like, we're going to golf in heaven or we're going to... Uh, uh, and this isn't a crazy idea. I think it's also an idea that creeps into our minds when we lose our focus. Sometimes we get to thinking that heaven is primarily about hanging out with family, right? We have departed grandparents and children and husbands, whatever, and we're going to get to spend time with them. Praise the Lord, we will. But that's not the primary point and purpose of heaven, 
Christ himself is the center of heaven. He's the lamb on the throne, and our entire existence will be ordered around him. All of these other things that we enjoy here on creation, like being in creation and golfing and being with family, these are things that should always point us to Jesus Christ, right? There are little joys and pleasures that we have because of who he is and what he has done for us. And that's what you get kind of in these uh, other passages that I include here that they give us a little uh, idea of what does this uh, eternal life look like. For instance, the Matthew 22 passage, that's once again, the angels, they are neither married or are given in marriage, right? The point there is not that we are having relationships with one another, but first off, that our relationship with the Lamb is perfect and holy, and uh, and that we don't need any other relationships because we have that relationship first and foremost with Him, and that informs our life together as the uh, people of God surrounded around the throne in heaven, right? So that's the passage from Matthew. In Revelation, of course, this is the they shall neither hunger nor thirst nor sun strike them anymore nor any, any scorching heat no more pain or suffering wipe away every tear from their eyes so it'll be a, a life of happiness and joy first corinthians 15 the trumpet sounds dead will be raised imperishable right that is our bodies will last forever right no longer will we have to suffer with disease and sickness and then from first john chapter 3 verse 2 beloved we are god's children now and we know that what he has uh, what we will be has not yet been revealed but we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So we will be made uh, in the perfect image of Jesus Christ. Question six. Amen. Luther explains <laughs> the amen with, yes, yes, it shall be so. Read Deuteronomy twenty-seven fifteen to 26. What purpose does the amen serve in this passage? And read Revelation 7, 9 to 12. What do the, why do the angels say amen? How does this inform our own usage of this word? Amen, amen, Luther says, yes, yes, it shall be so. It's not just a period at the end of the prayer, but it is in fact a declaration that this is in fact what I believe, teach, and confess, and that I'm signing on to whatever this prayer is. So if you read the passage from Deuteronomy, we're not going to go through all of it. Basically, uh, this is the people taking what God is declaring through Moses and saying, yes, we have heard it. Yes, this is what we believe. This is who we are. This is what we will do. We are signing our name to this. Amen. Yes, yes, it shall be so among us us. In the Revelation passage, you have uh, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, and so on. And uh, in this passage, the angels fall on their faces and they say, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And when we use Amen in prayers, we are often using it in the context of petition and request, asking God for something, right? Amen, yes, this is indeed my request. But the angels aren't asking anything. They're actually blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving. They are praising God and blessing him and adding their Amen to this as a declaration of who he is and what he continues to do for them. So the emphasis is not on requesting, but on proclaiming the the glories of him who called us sinners out of darkness and into his marvelous light, the, the glories of him who created all of creation, angels, ourselves, everything, and yet also continues to sustain it. And so also we, as we do our, as we pray and, and engage in prayer, should keep this in mind, that we not only ask, but also give thanks and bless God for the great things he has done for us. Amen. 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 Pastor, thank you so much for digging into the scriptures with us this month, this month, searching the scriptures in the Lutheran Witness December edition. Always a joy to talk with you. Thanks so much, Pastor Askins. Thank you so much. It's great to be back for you guys. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Eddie Bates. I'm Sarah Goldfeth.
The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.